Good morning. This is Pastor Todd. I want to thank you for tuning in to the Gathering Place podcast. This week, I am sharing a message for the church. I trust the Lord uses it to encourage and build you up. And here is this week's message. God, and, ah, thank you that restored health in your family, in Jesus' name. And Father God, bless him as he shares the word of God with us, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, good morning, everybody. How are we doing? Are we good? On? There we go. Every years ago, um, one of my speech teachers used to get onto us for blowing into the microphone because they say it'll like burst the diaphragm or get too much moisture in it. So we we gotta tap it instead of blow on it. <laughs> so uh, so yeah, we're doing uh, the next. Uh, a message on our Advent season. Um, last week, Byron mostly came out of Luke, and so this week we're going to come out of Matthew. So I'll do a quick prayer, and uh, we'll get jumped into that. So dear Heavenly Father, thank you that we get to celebrate uh, the coming of your Son. Lord, that you did give the greatest gift of all, and that Heavenly Father, you have called us into an eternal home in relationship with you, um, and that you moved heaven and earth to make that happen. So we give you the thanks, the praise, the glory, and the honor for that. And dear Lord, I pray that this message will move in our hearts, that we will have a better vision of you, that we will come away knowing more about who you are. In Jesus' name, amen. So most of us know, I think we're all pretty much Americans here, um, that one of the core elements in the Christmas season is the gift exchange. Like that's like the, the big thing, right? Like we spend tons of money, we wrap up gifts, and then we, we do a gift exchange, and we're going to do a gift exchange at the Christmas party, and then we'll do gift exchanges at home, and sometimes we go to work and we do gift exchanges. That's a core element of the Christmas season, particularly, especially in America, but like a very European uh, tradition. We get together and we do this. And it's true that our culture, especially in America, has turned this season into kind of a materialist wasteland of sorts, where it's often devoid of that true purpose of Christmas. And so, you know, in the last 20 years, you've started seeing, like, big signs say, Jesus is the reason for the season, right? Because we feel like, like we're slipping away from these core elements of what Christmas is about. But with the gift-giving, even as materialistic as it is, it's still an element, that core element that's present, and you can still find that meaning of Christmas you look, you don't even have to look very hard. You just look enough and practice it enough, and you can recapture that. Because Christmas is a time for us to celebrate God giving his only son. Like, that is the greatest gift for the salvation of the world, right? I mean, like in John 3.16, I'm, I'm surprised John 3.16 doesn't show up for Christmas season all the time. You know, we usually see that during Easter, but not so much Christmas, but it's what? For God so loved the world that he what? gave his only begotten son that whoever would believe in him would not perish but have everlasting life. There's this giving element. You know, and, and one of the core tenets of Jesus' teaching is that it's better to give than to receive. So there's this, all of this caught up in giving and that's embodied in our Christmas season. And much like having communion causes us to remember the price that Jesus paid on the cross, so observing Christmas 
causes us to remember that Jesus is this greatest gift. And so when we observe Christmas, we are declaring this powerful gift that our Heavenly Father has given for us to be made right in heaven. So as we look at that, as we're reflecting on that this year, this week we're going to go through the Gospel of Matthew's Christmas account and with a couple of other verses kind of peppered in there uh, to look at this meaning of Christmas. So starting in Matthew chapter 1, verse 18, and uh, since i got some big chunks, I'm going to keep uh, Catherine over here working. Uh, so good luck, Catherine. <clears throat> All right, so chapter 1, verse 18. This is how the birth of Jesus the Messiah came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they came together, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. <coughs> Excuse me. Because Joseph, her husband, was faithful to the law and yet did not want to expose her to public disgrace, had in mind to divorce her quietly. And we'll get into some of these dynamics here in a little bit. But after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. So we, we see these prophecies in the New Testament. It's usually italicized or something. You know, it's kind of set apart. And I bet usually in, in our reading, we typically don't go look that up. And we don't spend a lot of time looking at that context. But this is a, an important one to kind of get in our minds. So we're going to jump back to this prophecy in the Old Testament to look at that context to see what's going on here. So this quote comes out of Isaiah chapter 7. And we're going to go through verses 10 through 14. And then we're going to go a little bit further. So starting in verse 10. Again, the Lord spoke to Ahaz. And said, ask the Lord your God for a sign, whether in the deepest depths or in the highest heights. But Ahaz said, I will not ask. I will not put the Lord to the test. There's some funky stuff going on there. I'll talk about that in a second. Then Isaiah said, hear now, you house of David. Is it not enough to try the patience of humans? Will you try the patience of my God also? Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. The young woman will conceive, uh, we usually read this, the virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel. Now before we move on, this is what's going on. This is about 730 BC. All right? What's happened? We have two kingdoms now. We have the kingdom of Judah, kingdom of Israel. Kingdom of Israel had made an alliance with other kingdoms to try to fight back the oncoming Assyrians. And Judah was holding out. And so these other kingdoms, Israel, they're like same ancestry, right? The kingdom of Israel and all these other ones are trying to, to put pressure on Judah to force them into this alliance to fight against Assyria. <coughs> and Ahaz doesn't want to. So he's in this tough political position where this, this group, this team wants him on their team, right? And he doesn't want to. And he's, they're kind of using some violent tactics to do this. It's almost like a hostile takeover. So he's tempted to reach out to Assyria for assistance. And Isaiah, the prophet, 
comes to Ahaz and is saying, don't align yourself with Assyria. Don't follow Assyria. And so this is the crux of what's happening. You know, Ahaz has to make this huge decision where the fate of his kingdom is in the line of what's going on. And Isaiah is saying, don't go to Assyria. And in that, in that context, Isaiah says, ask the Lord for a sign. See if it's legit. See if what I'm saying is legit. Ask the Lord for the sign. And Ahaz doesn't want to entertain it. So he gives this false piety response. I won't tempt the Lord. And Isaiah knew his heart. God knows his heart. He knows that this is just trying the patience of the Lord. Because he doesn't want to hear the word of the Lord. That's the whole thing prophets are about, is bringing the word of the Lord and bringing people back to the law. And so Isaiah's like, all right, you're going to give me a false piety answer? You're going to get a sign anyway. Right? And he goes and gives a sign that a virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they'll call him Emmanuel. All right, so that's like, he's like, this is going to happen. This is what's going to happen. Now, whenever we look at this from the lens of the New Testament, we see this as a prophecy of Jesus. In 720 BC, or 730, it's you know, within a decade era, that's not what they were expecting. They're not expecting a Messiah to come 700 years later to free Israel. They're expecting something a little bit more immediate. And so for anybody reading the Old Testament who doesn't have a context of the New Testament, they're like, well, what is this? When is this going to happen? When does it happen? The next chapter over. So we're going to go over to Isaiah chapter 8. <clears throat> chapter 8, verses 1 through 3. The prophecy is fulfilled, but not like it was said. And so is there a conditional element to prophecies coming true? Absolutely. There are some prophecies that are like <clears throat> decreed from God from on high, unconditional is going to happen. There are also prophecies that happen that have a conditional element. If such and such happens, then such and such will happen. And this is kind of one of those in the immediate context in the 700s. The Lord said to me, this is Isaiah talking, take a large scroll and write on it with an ordinary pen these words, Mahar Shalal Hashbaz. So I called in Uriah the priest and Zechariah the son of uh, Jeberekiah as reliable witnesses to me. So anything that has to happen has to be done in the, in the eyes of witnesses to be established. It's Deuteronomic law. And so he calls them in as witnesses. I'm writing this down. You see it? Yes, we see it. Okay, here it is. Then, this is Isaiah, I made love to the prophetess, which is his wife. He's a natural prophet. So what's the wife of a prophet going to be called? A prophetess. I made love to the prophetess, and she conceived and gave birth to a son. So we have a fulfillment of this prophecy happening. However, the Lord said to me, name him Maharshal al-Hashbaz. So God gave him a name, wrote it down, had the witnesses look at it. This is what the Lord said. Okay, boom. Now he goes and has a son, and he names him that name. So some conditions of this prophecy were not met, so that prophecy came true in a different way. Now, whenever we, if we were to read the Hebrew, when we come to the word virgin, it says a virgin shall give birth. In Hebrew, the actual word is alma. A-L-M-A, pretty much, alma. And that doesn't necessarily mean virgin. It's an umbrella term that describes a young woman of childbearing age. That's what Alma means. The prophetess, 
was a young woman of childbearing age. She was an Alma. However, a little bit of history here. I'm a history guy, so I always have to throw this history stuff in. Alexander the Great takes over everything to the Indus River Valley, forces everybody to learn Greek, right? So what happens to all of the Jewish people all over the land that are losing Hebrew, and they don't know Hebrew very well? They gather together, traditionally 70 scholars, and translate the Hebrew Bible into Greek. That's known as the Septuagint. From the time that Isaiah writes this passage in 720 BC, and uses the word Alma, which is a young woman of childbearing age, to the time it gets to these traditional 70 scholars who translates it into Greek, they change the word from young woman, which would be more like a, a like gune in Greek, to parthenos, or parthena. And parthena is, in Greek, clearly unmistakable word virgin. So something changed in the theology of the Jews from Isaiah's time to the writing of the Septuagint to where it's not just a young woman giving birth, which was fulfilled the next chapter over to some degree. It's clearly an expectation of a virgin birth. To use the, the, the more academic term, because I like to, just for fun, parthenogenesis. Well, <laughs> parthen the virgin birth. So there's this clear change in the theology over a 500-year span that now this is referring to a virgin birth. And so the prophecy's back on the table. So at some point, like, you know, the, the, the Jews will go and, like, write off, like, this prophecy was fulfilled, this one's fulfilled. Well, this one had been somewhat fulfilled, but they're like, hey, wait a minute, we're writing this into the Greek. The child that was born was never named Emmanuel or anything like Emmanuel. And so it wasn't fully fulfilled, so now they're putting it back on the table as something to expect to happen in the future, which does, you know, roughly 230 years later. <laughs> so Isaiah prophesies this. This happens. And then there's an expectation that this is not quite done, so we're going to look for this again. And so this is back on the table. Now all the scholars are back looking at when is this going to happen? What's this going to look like? So this jumps us back to Matthew. Sorry, Catherine, told you you had a lot of work to do here. Back to Matthew, chapter 1, verse 24. When Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord commanded him and took Mary home as his wife. But he did not consummate their marriage until she gave birth to a son, and he gave him the name Jesus. If you wanted to use the Aramaic, it would be more like Yeshua, something like that. So we're going to break this passage down a little bit, okay? Mary and Joseph's engagement. It says that Mary and Joseph were betrothed or engaged or pledged, depending on your translation. Because, you know, 30 different Bible translations in English because copyright laws. So even if you have, like, the most accurate translation, if you're buttoned up against the NIV, then you can't use those terms. You've got to use... So you get a whole plethora of different words. They're engaged to be married. In the Jewish law at that time, in their eyes they were legitimately married. They were married, they just hadn't consummated it. So all legal intents and purposes, they're married. And so when she ends up pregnant, there is some suggestion that she could have very likely been held with the charge of adultery for having a child that is not Joseph's, somebody that she's legally married to. If you ever read Leviticus, it doesn't go good for adulterous activity. 
So there's a lot button up against this. So, but Joseph really loves Mary, right? And, and even, even in this, this sense that, that he believes that she's been unfaithful, like it says he's a righteous man, so the right thing to do, right, is to dismiss her. But he's not a vindictive man, right? And so he's like, the right thing to do is to dismiss her. So I'm, I'm trying to do the right thing, but I, I want to minimize the fallout for her. So he tries to do this secretly. So that's what he's kind of planning in his mind. It's reasonable for him in his mind and his ordinary way of thinking until he has this dream, right? And an angel shows up and is like, go ahead, marry her, because this is from God. Uh, how about that for being like a major life change where like you're kind of told to go against your laws from an angel? Well, I don't know what his wrestling looks like in, in his mind emotionally, but he ends up following the angel's advice, right? Thank the Lord for that. <clears throat> so he, he goes and ends up marrying her. <clears throat> Excuse me. <clears throat> and then she ends up giving birth. <clears throat> so now we have the next scene in this. This is flipping over to Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 through 14. And it says this. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, Where is the one who has been born king of the Jews? We saw this star when it rose, and have come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed, and all Jerusalem with him. When he had called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Messiah was to be born. Bethlehem in Judea they replied, for this is what the prophet has written. Excuse me, but you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. <clears throat> then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, go and search carefully for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me so that I may go and worship him. After they had heard the king, they went on their way, and the, star they had, uh, and the star they had seen when it rose went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. And coming into the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. They opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. And then uh, right after that, when they had gone, the angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Get up, he said. Take the child and his mother and escape to Egypt. Stay there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. So he got up, took the child and his mother during the night, and left for Egypt. So this is, this is the birth of Jesus. There's a lot going on there, right? We have this major fulfillment of prophecy that was off the table and put back on the table. And then we got a whole political thing going on. And then we got these, like, magi, whatever they are, right, coming out from the east, bringing these gifts. So we're going to break this down a little bit. Magi from the east. <laughs> um, most people now, uh, when they have looked into it, have basically determined that these wise men were likely descended from the Jews that stayed in Babylon whenever they were allowed to go back to Israel. Because you had some that stayed and some that went back to Israel under Cyrus and Xerxes, all that fun stuff. So you had a group that went back. You had some that kind of stayed and camped out in Babylon. 
and Assyria and those, those areas. So these are likely Jews that were descended from those Jews in Babylon who were educated, who were scholars, they were astronomers, astrologers, all, all, of, the, all of the big sciences that, that would make them like notable wise mages for the king, things like that. <clears throat> so they're stargazing, and they see this, <coughs> excuse me, this giant star show up in the sky. And there's some that believe that, that this was, I think it was Saturn and Jupiter coming together um, in the sky, like in alignment, and so it causes like this big looking star in the sky. And they consult their oracles, their books, and they determine that that this is a royal thing, this is the king. Because I think Jupiter was symbolized like royalty and the kingship back in the day. And so you have this, this strange alignment happening. And so like, hey, a king was born. And so they're, they're looking at their prophets, right? And they're looking at the, the old Jewish prophecies and saying, oh, there's a king born in Israel. We need to go to Israel. So they pack everything up and they're heading off to Israel from Babylon, which is a bit of a hike. Uh, I guess it's probably from like Pennsylvania to Kansas, um, roughly. And so they're on these camels and they're going. They got all their gifts. They have this huge entourage. I mean, these are like really wealthy people. And they get to Jerusalem. So where do they go? A king is born. Where's the king born? In a palace. So they go to the palace and they say, Hey, hail King Herod. We're here to worship the newborn king. He's like, What newborn king? You're like, All of a sudden, things aren't on the up and up as they were kind of expecting. And so, like, well, there's the king who was born, the, the star. And so Herod, like, secretly goes out and he calls his scholars, hey, what's going on here? There's a king born. Where's this king supposed to be born? Like, oh, according to this and this and this, Bethlehem. Right? So they look into their stuff. Why, so why, why is Herod a king if he's not the king to be born? That's still some of Israel's history. Um, if you ever look at, like, a Catholic Bible, you've got these other books in there. And uh, two of those books is First and Second Maccabees. And, and what is First and Second Maccabees? Are historical accounts of Israel in that 400-year period between the end of the Old Testament and the beginning of the New Testament. And they're called Maccabees because the leader of this, this revolt that throws off their oppressors is a guy named Judas Maccabeus, or Judas the Hammer, is what they call him. And so he throws off the, the current, like, like uh, King, kingdom that was overruling them. They have this revolt. He sets his own lineage in line, and Herod is related to that lineage. So Herod's not even related to the, the Davidic dynasty. Like these guys have kind of like disappeared, and they end up in the backwaters of Nazareth. So most of the people in Nazareth are some sort of a descendant of David and his family, but they're all like backwater farmers now. Like 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 nobodies. I mean, it's like going down to Louisiana. Like what what good thing can come out of Louisiana, right? <laughs> So, so they're not really a political threat. Herod, he's on the up and up with Caesar. He, he, he kind of grew up in Caesar's court under, uh, with Caligula and, and Claudius and all that. I know I'm throwing all these names. You probably don't know who they are. But Roman Empire, Herod's on the up and up with the Roman emperors. He gets his own little kingship because he was descended of all these brave people who threw off this other kingdom. And so he hears, there's a legitimate king no, no, we, we can't have this. I'm the king. We can't have a competing king. And so he, he's like, all right. He schemes, right? He, tell, he tells the, the, the magi, 
You go find him. You go worship this baby king. And then you tell me so I can go worship this baby king. Right? Like, he's got this all worked out in his mind. And, and the magi, like, they're none the wiser, right? They're foreigners. We're like, okay. Like, so they don't know the political ins and outs that's going on right now. Like, okay, king, we'll, uh, we'll do that. It's a sign. It's a sign. <laughs> and so, so he sends them off. And so, so the Magi go, and they, they, they go to this little house in Nazareth, because presumably they're not still hanging out in Bethlehem two years later, right? So they, they go to Nazareth, and they find this little hut, or whatever it is, and they go in, and they find Mary and baby Jesus, and the first thing they do, they bow down and they worship Jesus. Like, this is the one, the star led us here. And then they give these gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. So these gifts... Now, if I've got a three-year-old boy, he's over there, a little blonde-haired boy, his name's Finn, and if I brought him some gold, some frankincense, and some myrrh, he would not be happy with me. <laughs> he would not appreciate this gift. He'd be like, I want my tractors. He's a tractor guy. He's all about tractors. No tractors, tractor plates, tractor toys. We even got him like a tractor spoon and fork. I mean, he's, just, he's a tractor guy. If I got him gold, frankincense, and myrrh, it would not go over well. So why, why would these really, really rich magi bring gold, frankincense, and myrrh? <coughs> because it's a way to honor a king or a god in the ancient world. So according to historians, gold, frankincense, and myrrh were among the gifts that were given to the temple of Apollo in 243 BC by King um, Seleucus II. So gifts being given to a king or to a god, standard protocol is gold, frankincense, and myrrh. So these magi were following the most strict protocol that they could in terms of this king and, and for them, they, they, they understood the stars, this divine king who was born in the earth. So they're following this protocol, and they're bringing these gifts to the king. Now, since the birth of the church, there's been a traditional meaning or a symbolism attached to each of these three gifts. And so, and, and this is kind of incorporated, I, I didn't even think to pull this up, but the old song, We Three Kings of Orient Are, right? <clears throat> that the, the, the first king offers gold, and the gold represents Jesus' kingship, right? So they see this star in the constellation of the kings, and the, and the star, Jupiter, right, represents the king. So you get this king star showing up in the constellation of kingship. Jesus is a king. So this gold represents his kingship. And then frankincense, uh, other than, you know, like in addition to like the, 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 the healing elements and the soothing elements, the, the frankincense is, you know, it's a, it's a sweet-smelling resin. But in the ancient world, from Babylon through into Israel, frankincense is constantly used as incense during worship. And even in some, uh, like, Catholic and Orthodox ceremonies to this day, they have an incenser, well, they'll, they'll swing it, and they'll be burning incense, and, uh, and that's usually frankincense. Um, and it just it fills the, the, the cathedral or the church with just a sweet-smelling smoke. <coughs> and 
And there's a lot of symbolism in Revelation about that. But this frankincense used in worship then begins to represent Jesus' priesthood. Because we have Jesus as a prophet, priest, king, right? He's king of the Jews. He's a priest in the order of Melchizedek, according to Hebrews. And he's a prophet. that he, you know, He's like no greater prophet than Jesus has arisen. So there's this prophet, priest, king trifecta happening with Jesus' station. So this frankincense then begins to represent this priesthood aspect. So this priest king, like Melchizedek was a priest king in, in Genesis. And then myrrh has come to symbolize um, a foreshadowing of his death. Because myrrh is often used in burial rituals. Um, it's a very strong, like a pungent uh, ointment that can kind of keep the stench of death away, you know, during funerals and things like that. Uh, interesting to note, in the Gospel of Mark, it also mentions myrrh being mixed in with the wine that they offer Jesus when he's on the cross. So we have this recurrence of myrrh coming back into the scene uh, during Easter. So as we wrap all of this up, right, there's a lot going on in, in just these two chapters. So I'm going to distill it down to four things. The virgin birth, we have this evolution in, in prophecy, right, from uh, a, a young woman giving birth to clearly a virgin birth. And then that comes true with Mary. Uh, and then we have the star of Bethlehem, right? This star, this alignment uh, that delineates uh, the birth of a major king, possibly a divine king. And a uh, fun little side note, my, my five-year-old, Elora, you know, we were decorating the Christmas tree, and we have the star that goes on top of the tree, and so I was like, what a great time. So like, because we're, we're, we, we have, uh, Shannon and I, what we do is like every year we try to find an ornament that kind of like hits a foundational memory for that year. So we've been amassing these ever since we started dating. And so we'll pull them out every year and go over the story of each of these ornaments as we hang them on the tree. So we, we got all the ornaments hung and we finally got to the star. And I said, oh, Laura, do you know why we put a star at the top of the tree? She goes, no. And we have this little... Jesus Bible that we read for them at night and they go through the star of Bethlehem that leads these wise men to Jesus. I said, you know that star that, that leads the wise men to Jesus' house? Yeah. I said, that's called the star of Bethlehem because they're coming from the east and the star leads them to Bethlehem, right? It's actually Nazareth, but you know. But it leads them to where Jesus is. And so to remember that, we put a star on the top of the Christmas tree to guide the way to Jesus. Now for her, she's like, oh, that's interesting. You know, but for me, there's like a deep meaning that, that as a five-year-old, I'm, I'm infusing this in her so that she'll know when she's 15, when she's 20, when she's 25, she's going to remember the star of Bethlehem. Right? It's going to be part of this ongoing narrative. So the star of Bethlehem comes. So we have a virgin birth, which is miraculous in and of itself. We have the star of Bethlehem. So we know that even from the beginnings of the foundations of, of the cosmos, God had set the planets in motion to align in such a way at that time to make it clear his son had come. So we can say that God moved heaven and earth in the declaration of the birth of his son. If, if that wasn't enough, right? And then, in addition to that, wants to make sure nothing's going to interfere with this process. Not, 
Not Joseph and his strict adherence to the law. Not Herod. Not the wise men being duped by a, a, a jealous king. So what happens? On no less than three occasions, we have dreams and angelic visions to tell people, do this, so that it will thwart any enemy's attack on Jesus. Tells Joseph, you better marry that woman. This is from God. Tells him, you better get the heck out of Dodge and you go to Egypt. And he tells the wise man, Herod's trying to kill this baby. You need to not go back to Herod's. We'll have to sneak out of like Capernaum or something. Three occasions around this where angels show up. Well, and that's not even counting the angels to the shepherds, right? That's a whole other thing. And then we have this, like, right? Joseph and Mary, they're living in a, probably a small, modest house in Louisiana, right? And, and, in this, like, podunk area. And here you have these rich, wise men coming from Babylon with these elaborate gifts. And so what you'd expect, you know, like dirty clothes, poopy diapers, all that stuff. And here they show up in their fine garments with the best protocol they can muster to honor a newborn God King. And they give them gold trinkets and some myrrh. They have these powerful symbols, right? And so we have God giving his son for the redemption of mankind. We have the richest magi in Babylon giving the gifts to Jesus as a prophet, priest, king, God. And all of that stands as the beginning of our Christmas traditions. And so we give gifts because it's enshrined in everything that, that deals with Jesus coming to earth to bring us redemption. And so that's the gospel tied up in the Christmas message. So dear Heavenly Father, thank you for your goodness and your grace. Thank you, Father, that you, that you stack the decks in your favor, Lord, and that you offer mankind a redemption that we could have never gotten on our own. Jesus, thank you for your willingness to come down from heaven, be a baby, grow up, and die so that we may have life. Thank you for learning that level of submission to the Heavenly Father that we all are now beneficiaries of. So we give you the thanks, the praise, the glory, and the honor. And we ask that your heart would be warmed by our worship during this Christmas season. In Jesus' name, amen. God's Holy Spirit is, is moving here and gifting us. And, and one, of the, one of the gifts that, that we're practicing every first Sunday of the month is allowing time for prophetic words. Uh, just as Todd had mentioned. Hello again, this is Pastor Todd. I pray the Lord uses my message today to strengthen your walk with God. If you are blessed by this message and would like to support the ministry of The Gathering Place financially, I encourage you to use our online giving portal at tgpchicago.org. The portal uses PayPal's secure site so none of your information is compromised. Once again, thank you for tuning in to The Gathering Place podcast. God bless you and have a great week.